Welcome to Sellersburg United Methodist Church Podcast, where we bring our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world to you, wherever you are. final week of our discipleship series called Follow Me. And so five weeks ago, we started with the baptism of Jesus. We heard the words of affirmation of Christ's identity. You are my son, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. And the world as we know it was torn open. The very spirit of God entered into the world through Christ and began the work of bringing in the kingdom. And so this baptism that that we got to participate in, as well those of us who have become members of the church, and if you haven't, we would love to talk to you about baptism because in the waters of baptism, the water becomes an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace of the work of the Spirit in our hearts. And so we receive our identity as well, or it is affirmed as we affirm it. And we walked through in in week two that even through us, good things can come. Even through a time such as this, good things can come in a life of discipleship. We faithfully follow in the way of Christ because Christ remakes our lives. We, We bring everything to Christ. We seek meaning and purpose through a life devoted to God as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we, we bring our entire selves, even the parts we are not comfortable with bringing, even the parts that we don't want to bring because we like the way they are and we don't want God to disrupt them and possibly change them or move us in a different direction. It's scary. I get it. Believe me. As a pastor, as many pastors, many ministers, many Christians before me, God can disrupt things, but it is so good to go where God wants you to go and to offer everything to God and let God start to work and change. Not that I've perfected it, not not by any means, but I have come to know the great blessing of when we submit ourselves in this way to ask, what have you to do with every part of our life, Jesus? And through our complete submission in this way, we are repurposed for the inbreaking kingdom of God through service. Not that everyone's called to do something different, but actually to do the things we already do differently. And in that way, we find a repurposing, even here and even now, that we can find that we can be a source of revealing the love of God as revealed to us in Jesus Christ. So as disciples, we say yes Yes to a life of discipleship, which means we're also saying no to any other way. We say yes to this kingdom, and we say no to any other kingdom, any other way of life, any other set of rules and meaning and purpose for this world. Only Jesus reveals to us the fullness of what it means to be in a life of discipleship to be in a life of the kingdom of God. And so we're going to come to our final time today 
to hear that call once again, to follow and to listen, to listen to Jesus Christ. I want to start today by telling some personal stories. I've rarely told these stories, and the few times I did, there were very few words I used to tell them. One, because they're, they're odd stories, and two, they're unlikely to be believed. And so, it's just not very often I've felt the need or urge to tell the stories. I'm choosing to tell these stories today because they are similar kinds of stories to the passage we're going to read in Mark. Similar not in detail, but in character. Okay, not in detail, but in character. I've not experienced anything like what we're going to read in the passage, but the amount of mystery from today's passage is what I find in the stories that I want to tell of my own life. Another reason I haven't told these stories is one, I've heard people tell these kinds of stories before in ways that they seem to be pining for extra authority or power or awe from others, and I have no interest in that. Um, stories like these can leave people saying, you know, this guy's crazy, and I don't know that I can believe anything he says if he's going to tell me a story like this, and I totally get it. Um, so I, I think I'm building these stories up more than I intended. So there are three related stories, and I'm going to tell a little more detail in the first and less detail in the second and third because you'll kind of get the idea of what they're about. Uh, the first one comes about... 10 years ago, and my mother's father, my grandpa, but come from a German background, I called him Opa, he was in his final days. And he was at home, and he was not aware they had a hospital bed set up. And I had received the message, the nudging from my mom that, you know, you need to come. You need to come in the next day or two. Because um, if you wait too long, you may not get the opportunity to say goodbye. So Lauren and I drove up to Indianapolis and entered the home, and, and there was my grandfather. And that's the first time I've really ever seen anyone in their final days. And so my aunt was there, my mom was there, and then my Opal's wife, our Oma, she was there. And so it began with hugs and hello, and they all stood around the bed together. And being self-conscious, I, I didn't really feel comfortable saying my goodbyes in front of everybody. So we sat down. We sat down across the room as a large living room, sitting on the couch, and as we're having conversation, catching up on what's going on with families and what's going on in life, I noticed a glimmer of light. It looked like a large piece of dust in the sunlight. You've probably seen dust floating around in the sunlight, or maybe that's just our house that has some dust. No, I think not. It looked really big, and it was kind of just fluttering over his body, and I thought, that's a really big piece of dust. And... A minute later, it's still there, just the one. And I started watching it because I got the sense that this is not a normal piece of dust. And it kind of flitted and floated, and eventually I watched it enter into my opal's mouth, which was strange. And even stranger, it came back out, followed by a second piece of dust. And I got the overwhelming sense in the moment that this was my time if I wanted to say goodbye to go say goodbye. So I got up, I didn't say anything to anyone. I went over and I whispered in his ear and told him thank you for being such a good man and, and such a good opa and uh, we were gonna be okay. And I sat back down and, and I watched the pieces of dust kind of twirl and dance. It's the only way I could describe it. 
and then they were gone. He was still breathing. Uh, they anticipated another day or two. So I didn't say anything to anyone. Got in the car, and I told Lauren, I just saw this, and the only way I can perceive of it is maybe it was him dying, his life, his spirit leaving. I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. We drove home half an hour and almost immediately got the call that he had stopped breathing and, and he had passed. The only thing I could make sense of it was I watched him leave with something. Now, my Christian faith gives me a lot of detail to fill this in. Um, the second instance I had was about a year or two later, my grandmother, my father's mother, was gonna have surgery. I've, I've never even really told my family this story. She was gonna have surgery for her heart. Um, they thought things were gonna be okay and fine. They didn't anticipate problems with the surgery. It was gonna be in the morning on a Saturday and I woke up, I woke up at a particular time to the sound, it was a dream that I had of like the uh, beep of a heart monitor in a hospital getting faster and faster and there was a little bit of commotion and then there was a flat line. And it woke me up from my dream and uh, I heard a voice kind of not cry out, but it was, a, it was a high voice. And something in me said, go to the hospital. You need to be at the hospital today. So I left and I went to the hospital and there were a number of my family sitting and waiting. And it was a long surgery. She was on a bypass machine. And eventually they came out in the afternoon and said they were unable to get her to be okay and, and awake and alive off of the bypass machine. I didn't say anything to anybody. One, and it wasn't the moment. Um, and two, I don't know what people would have thought. So I kept it to myself for a long time, except for Lauren. And it was strange that I had seen what I saw with my Opal, I heard what I heard with my grandmother, and then a year or two later, it was Lauren's grandmother in the hospital in her final moments. And in a walking down the hall, I felt this feeling sweep over me and at that point, I was a little more on alert to pay attention to what was happening around me and my senses in these kinds of moments. And so I can only make sense that I somehow felt something happen. Um, I don't know what to do with these stories. I really don't. I, what I gained was tangible evidence of life after death. Now, I've known in my mind and even in my heart of life after death for a long time, but to see it to see it physically manifest, to experience it in my senses, in three different senses, it is a completely different kind of understanding than I had before. Why did I get to experience these things? I don't know. Why didn't anyone else get to experience them? I have no clue. What was I supposed to learn through this? I mean, was there a specific meaning I was supposed to gain? Maybe, but as of now, I don't know. I'm just kind of left with the mystery of it. And over the years, I've learned to be good with that. I'm good with that. I'm good with the mystery. It was a privilege. It was an honor. It was special. It does impact my life. But I don't know what to do with it beyond that. That mystery is strong. And it doesn't consume my thoughts, but it's there. And I actually have a love for the mystery. There's a mystery to life and death, and I have great peace with it. 
that part is what I want to illuminate in the story of transfiguration that we come to on this Transfiguration Sunday. Transfiguration Sunday always precedes Lent because there's something specific that happens on that Sunday or in that story that then turns Jesus' attention toward the march to Jerusalem where he will face his crucifixion and will have his resurrection. And there's a mystery to this scene. The disciples didn't get it in the moment. I don't know that they got it fully afterward because what we have in the scene is, is not a great deal of finitude or proclamation. It's just presented to us in this strange way that leaves lots of questions. Uh, the authors, the disciples, if we're honest, we don't really know what to do with the transfiguration. We've been given some insights, so we have some ideas, but when it comes to explaining it and fully understanding it, we're kind of uncomfortable with the story, which is why you don't hear it preached on much, because it's very tempting as a pastor to feel like you need to have the answers, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes we just, we have some things we've learned and then a whole lot of mystery. And I think that's such a key component to discipleship because we all have so much more to learn and there's so many things happening in our lives that we kind of have some idea, but so much mystery to it. And it's easy to maybe become obsessed and focused on the mystery, but I think it's good for us to just acknowledge it and make peace with it and trust that it will mean something later or trust that maybe it was just to reveal to us some kind of glory that we've not experienced before, something beyond what we conceived was even possible. That in itself is a tremendous lesson. So, and rather, rather than avoid the mystery today or rather than to shrink the story down into one answer, we're gonna honor the incredible mysterious elements and acknowledge simply that they are there and then talk about a few of them. But this transfiguration is one of the greatest parts of our story because it leaves it so wide open as to what God did and is doing through Jesus Christ, what God has done and will do for and through us. So even after today, you're going to have lots of questions about this passage, and that's okay. That's okay. When we can be comfortable with mystery, I think it's really only then that we're ready to be honest in meaningful ways. Some clues come to the meaning of this story uh, in, intended by our earliest gospel author. Uh, we can get some clues, but we really can't know what the author even intended to convey with this story fully. We can identify some things that speak to our lives, and that's what we're going to focus on. What can we take that speaks to our lives today? And then there's a whole wide world of meaning that, that's still out there and, and may reveal itself to us later. One thing to note, some of the clues that were given, is that this scene comes in the exact center of the gospel of Mark. In the story itself of Jesus, it's right in the middle. The first half is leading us into this understanding of who Jesus is. The opening line says it very clearly in 1-1, but then the next eight chapters are all speaking to his identity until the scene immediately prior is Jesus saying, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am, disciples? And then we get an answer from Peter. Uh, 
It's clear Peter doesn't understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. But the second half of the gospel is going to explain that. This transfiguration is kind of the hinge. So we have the identity of Jesus. It's been established in word and in title. Uh, In the eighth chapter, he finishes the eighth chapter by kind of filling out what it's going to mean. and, And the disciples just don't get it. If we want to be a disciple, if we want to follow Jesus, we have to say no to ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. What a great message for discipleship. And so from that, from the saying no to yourself, picking up your cross, following him, I imagine the disciples responded with a, say, wait, say what? Was there a cross part in there? What do you mean pick up your cross? Because a cross wasn't a pretty image that we put on our altars. That's not what they did. A cross was a brutal, gruesome, horrifyingly curse-filled way to be executed by the highest power in the land that had nothing to do with God. And it was done in such a way that demeaned the people as a whole. They didn't quite get it. There's a lot of mystery there. Now, three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they get privileged to go up onto the mountain with Jesus. And it's there that they experience the transfiguration. And so let us read from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and brought them to the top of a very high mountain where they were alone. He was transformed in front of them, and his clothes were amazingly bright, brighter than if they had been bleached white. Elijah and Moses appeared and were talking with Jesus. Peter reacted to all of this by saying to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't know how to respond, for the three of them were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice spoke from the cloud, This is my son whom I dearly love. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountains, he ordered them not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the human one had risen from the dead. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So if the transfiguration is the middle and the beginning is the baptism, the beginning of Jesus' work. His identity is spoken there in words similar to what we hear today. There it was, you are my son. Today it's, this is my son. There it was, I'm pleased with you. This is, listen to him. So at first it's Jesus being spoken to in this monumental moment at the beginning. And then here it's the disciples being spoken to in this monumental moment. Another identity affirmation of Jesus. First to Jesus, seemingly private, and then this one for the three disciples. I mean, in fact, the whole story of the transfiguration is told from their perspective. It's them that go with Jesus. They see Jesus revealed in this glory way and with two other people that they somehow know as Moses and Elijah. And then they 
respond, and then a cloud comes over them, and then suddenly they look and see no one. It's all told from their perspective. And all the things that we find in the story, in this scene, they all just echo dozens of Hebrew scriptures. And so we have dazzling white clothes, we have great figures, we have a mountaintop, we have a great cloud in the very voice of God. In the midst of this, we learn that the disciples who are perceiving it all are terrified. And wouldn't we all be terrified? We get unnerved when things are happening that are outside of our realm of possibility. That's why we don't like change, right? We just get mad at change. Seeing this terrified them. And then they didn't know what to say, but that didn't stop Peter from saying something. And there's humor here because Peter's very human. Have you ever experienced a moment where you just felt like something needed to be said even though you didn't know what to say and so you said something? I mean, I know I do. I'm a pastor, right? I always feel like there's something to say and, and typically will say something whether I should or shouldn't. And you can laugh along with me on that one. But this amazing scene is happening. This incredibly mysterious and glorious, unexpected, divine revelation moment is unfolding before them. And then it all seems to shift when Peter opens his mouth. Bless Peter. Bless Peter. He could say the perfect thing in one moment. He could say the completely wrong and even, as Jesus labels it, satanic thing in the next. And then here he says something that just kind of seems totally out of place and, and you couldn't label it good or bad. It's just pointless. Oh, I love Peter. We don't know exactly what he had in mind when he talked about building three shrines or the word in the Greek is tents. So maybe he was talking about like the the Feast of Booths, where they build tents. Or maybe he was talking about the Tent of Meeting, where the cloud of God came down upon Moses, and, and Moses spoke to God face to face. We don't know exactly what Peter was trying to say or, or what he might have been thinking. Whatever he intended, it falls flat. And then a cloud overshadows, and they hear the voice of God. As if they weren't scared already, they hear the voice of God. This is my son whom I dearly love, and then a command. Listen to him. Listen to him. He didn't say anything. We have nothing. We have nothing said in this scripture in this moment. He was standing there talking with Elijah and Moses, so they heard him talking. The disciples, as far as we know, didn't hear him say a word. So when Peter opened his mouth and then, you know, all of a sudden it's just Jesus standing there, nothing's been said. What did they mean? What did this voice mean? What did they think it meant? Listen to him. There's a lot of ideas, a lot of scholarly work out there. Maybe it's pointing back to Deuteronomy, when a great prophet was promised to be like Moses. God would raise up a prophet, and it was to that prophet people were to listen. It could be pointing back to the last conversation that Jesus had with the disciples, the last thing he told them about saying no to themselves, picking up their crosses and following him. Or, or maybe it could go back to when Peter had lifted him up as the Christ and then tried to directly work against the plan. But then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And then turns and says, look, I, I am, this is happening. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to experience suffering. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. So which of these are they supposed to listen to? Or was it all of them? Is it none of them? 
The answer is, of course, yes. Yes. All of these things, listen and more. Is Jesus ever done speaking through the Holy Spirit to us even now? Are we ever done listening? There's a command to the disciples that day and to the disciples of this day. This is my son, whom I dearly love. Listen to him. Listen to him. This brings our four very important points that I want to lift up today about this listening to Jesus. So point number one is that through Jesus, the kingdom of God and all of its heavenly splendor comes to earth. It came to earth. It comes to earth. It will continue to come. Number one, heavenly splendor comes to earth through Jesus. It did in that moment. They saw Jesus revealed in some significant way with people that had not walked the earth in hundreds of years. It did at his baptism. It's going to, down the road in the story, it's going to continue long after Jesus has ascended. It continues today, maybe in moments that we don't understand. But we know something's happening beyond normal reality. There's a very real temptation in these moments to speak, isn't there? To try to sum it up, which is really our effort to kind of fit it into our own category, to make sense of it, to not be afraid of it, to define it so we somehow have control over it, so somehow we don't have to live with the mystery which tends to disrupt us and disturb us in the most wonderful ways if we let it. We just have trouble letting the moment be and instead allowing it to speak to us. The second thing, even when we have the right words to say of who Jesus is, chances are we still have very wrong ideas about what that means. We probably have some good ideas, but we probably have some wrong ideas. After Jesus is identified as the Christ, Peter makes it directly clear that he's going to disrupt the plan that Jesus has just told him he's going to enact. He gets called Satan and is told that he's thinking human thoughts, not God thoughts. Ouch. Peter had just given the perfect answer, the answer no one else could give, the answer no one in the story knew at that point. Peter did, but immediately turns around and makes it clear he has the exact wrong idea about what that means. And let's just not pick on Peter. James and John are on the mountain too for the transfiguration. We know that James and John, after this scene, are going to eventually come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we want you to do us a favor. We want one of us to sit on your right and one of, you, one of us to sit on your left when you come into power. Essentially, what they're asking is, we want seats of the highest authority next to you. You'll be in the middle. You'll be the, most, the greatest authority, but we want to be right next to you. We want to have authority over everyone else, including the disciples, which makes the disciples really mad, by the way. So even the three that were up there that witnessed this great scene, they don't understand what it means. And in fact, they get it dead wrong. And they make it about themselves, what they're comfortable with, what helps them, self-seeking. Disciples, we do this. Even when we have some of the right answers, we still have some struggles and some learning to experience. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Number three, 
even though we can be very wrong, we are still entrusted with the work of the kingdom. We are still entrusted even when we are so very wrong. Jesus tells the disciples plainly what is happening. He gives it in detail, and they don't have the capacity to understand it. And I'm pretty sure Jesus knew that. He knows they will, which is why he tells them in the story today, don't tell anybody what you saw until after, after the human one rises from the dead. And their reaction is, what? Rises from the dead? They don't even, they don't even know what to do with that. They will. Jesus still trusts them. For now, the mystery of what just happened and what might or might not happen, the mystery is okay, friends. By our standards, Jesus might have already told Peter that, you know what? You got it so wrong and you speak up in the most, this most ridiculous moments. Maybe you should just go home, Peter. Maybe you just go back to fish, right? Maybe you just stop. He said the right words. He completely missed the point. But he, Jesus doesn't do this because there's grace in the life of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's grace. Jesus sees Peter for who he is, absolutely. He sees into his heart of hearts. He sees Peter for who Peter is that Peter doesn't even know of himself. He also sees who Peter could be and will be. And that's the way he nurtures Peter. The truth is, Jesus sees in all of us who we are at the heart of our hearts, even through the walls and the hard exteriors we've built in our life through a number of reasons, through a number of ways, many of which we're not even aware. Jesus sees through that. He sees who we really are in ways that we don't see of ourselves. Jesus sees who we could be and who we will be and loves us as such. There's grace in the life of being a disciple. Even when we're wrong, we are trusted with the work of the kingdom. Finally, number four, overall, we should know that we are to listen to only Jesus. We are to listen to only Jesus. The work of the kingdom revealed through Jesus is the incredible love of God with which he faces the evil of this world. And we are to listen to only Jesus. Jesus confronts the corruption all around him. He begins, he begins, and even himself in the wilderness, and then he begins in the synagogue, and then he begins in the countryside, and then eventually goes to Jerusalem. He confronts the corruption in his own people, sees them for who they are, who they can be, who they will be. And then he faces the corruption in the government of the day, the Roman Empire. Now, Jesus knows that confronting these things, refusing to play the games and follow the rules and define the world and the people around them by their terms, Jesus knows it will inevitably provoke the power of evil. Evil will realize that they don't, doesn't have control over Jesus. And so there are only a couple options, really only one. When you stand up to the oppression and injustice in this world, which is really just the idolatry of systems and institutions that have forgotten their place in the order of the world, God is king. When we face the oppression and injustice, you will face suffering. 
you will experience anger, abuse, accusation, rejection, and even death. We can witness this when we turn on the TV, right? We see people standing up to the injustice of racism. And how many people have been assassinated, beaten, defamed, and ridiculed in this stance? Well, of all the big ones, all of them have. That's what happens. Jesus is prepared to confront but he doesn't respond to them by their rules. Doesn't respond to them in kind. Even when he's rejected, he shows forgiveness and mercy, which makes no sense to the world around us. He doesn't confront evil to dominate and defeat it. Okay? He doesn't confront evil to dominate and defeat it. Rather, he confronts it so that he can challenge it expose it, and ultimately seek to transform it. It's the case it was with me. I've been transformed, and I'm continuing in the life of being transformed. And my work with the Spirit continues to challenge me and expose the truth of my heart to me for the sake of my transformation. We can look at some of the great people like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King as we celebrate Black History Month. And one of the things I respect most about Dr. King is he tells his enemies, you can beat us, you can abuse us, you can arrest us, you can hurt us, you can kill us. We're going to love you anyway. And we know that one day our love will wear you down. Your hatred will lose all of its energy. Your anger will lose all of its will. And our love will outlast. And then he says, and in the process, we're going to win you as well. That's, that's what Jesus seeks to do to evil, to transform it. We must say no to ourselves if we're going to be a disciple. We must. We must say no to our thirst for power, our desire for greatness, and our need to understand everything and be able to explain it and control it and enforce it over others. We've got to give it up, friends. Say no to ourselves, to anything at all that is self-seeking. If you're pining after how to build up your perspective, you're self-seeking. If you're just trying to be a part of talking about how your politics are so right and everyone else's is wrong, you're self-seeking. If you're just a part of this faith so that you can go to heaven, isn't that really about you? We must say no to ourselves. We must follow in the way of Jesus Christ to confront the world around us and to confront ourselves with love, with the kind of love that Jesus displays again and again and again. We must trust in God as Jesus did. We must go where Jesus goes. We must be as Jesus is. And we must do as Jesus does. We must embrace the mystery of our faith and embody the faith we've been graced to understand. There is so much more to learn, but what we have learned we need 
to embody it, to witness to it through our actions, not just in our words. And we may even have the words right, but we may be still learning. And, and the only way we learn is to embody it and to go and to live amidst the church as we encourage and build one another up, as we hold each other accountable, as we sharpen each other and make each other better. Our mission, our mission in the United Methodist Church is to make disciples for Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Because when we live into a life of discipleship, it transforms us and through us transforms the world or transfigures it. A disciple, as we've said many times in this series, it's a, a witness to Jesus Christ in the world who follows his teachings through acts of compassion, justice, worship, and devotion under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We must never be self-seeking disciples, because that's impossible. We must be ever-seeking Disciples, always seeking more of Jesus Christ in all that we do and also calling other people to join us. We must know that we are called right here and right now, even when we have so much to learn and understand, even when we've gotten so much of it wrong. Because the good news that we follow is that Jesus Christ leads us into a life of discipleship if we but listen to him, if we but live the life of the kingdom of God here and now evermore, trusting in his guidance to lead us into it in everything we do and everything we say. The life of discipleship, it began before we were aware of it. God is re relentlessly pursuing everyone and relentlessly pursued us. And so for those of us who have been graced to become aware of it, the strength to say yes, to receive the gift of faith, to be baptized, to commit, to turn our lives over, to begin the journey of discipleship. We celebrate and dance that we are here and that we have been able to see and experience all that we have. And those who have not become aware of God's relentless pursuit, they're waiting on us, friends. They're waiting on us, not to have the right words, but to allow our acts of compassion and justice and worship and devotion be our witness. When they see that living life by the way of Jesus rather than the way of the world is actually what brings us into eternal life, into the kind of life of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the kind of life that fulfills and gives purpose and meaning. And so let us continue walking in this life, listening only to Jesus and listening and following the way of the kingdom revealed through him. Let us commit ourselves or recommit to follow him on this amazing, adventurous, challenging, ongoing, difficult, meaningful, and purpose-filled life of discipleship in his name. Join me, friends. Amen. We thank you for worshiping with us. And it is our hope that through the Holy Spirit, you have felt the touch of God upon your life. If you would like to know more about our church and its ministries, 
please visit our website at sellersburgumc.com.